Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm Providence Managing Editor Drew Griffin. My guest today is Leela Gilbert. She is a fellow at the Hudson Institute, working with both the Center for Religious Freedom and the Center for Islam, Democracy, and the Future of the Muslim World. She's a frequent writer and contributor to the Jerusalem Post and Fox News and the Philos Project and Providence Magazine and other publications. She's an award-winning writer. Uh, Her latest book, published in 2012 by Encounter Books, is Saturday People, Sunday People, Israel Through the Eyes of a Christian Sojourner. She's lived in Israel Uh, for 10 years, moving back to the States in 2017, and um, is uh, a a writer that we're happy to dialogue with today about anti-Semitism, about Iran, and um, uh, the the scourge that is hate and anti-Semitism around the world. Leela, welcome. Hello, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So you have a recent... um, uh, article in the Jerusalem Post that I wanted to kind of bring uh, to people's attention. It was published uh, uh, June 14th, and it's it's talking about kind of the the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States. Uh, The recent report uh, that was released about um, anti-Semitic activities in the United States had some kind of uh, both kind of good and and bad aspects to it. Uh, Before we kind of delve into what you talk about in the uh, in the article, we, we talk about anti-Semitism before on this podcast. We, it's a frequent, unfortunately, it's a frequent topic we, we can't seem to escape. It's a perennial topic that every year and every generation seems to have to contend with the, the scourge that is anti-Semitism. So before we kind of begin, I, anytime I talk about this uh, you know, topic with anyone, um, I, I want to know, like, what, what's your definition of anti-Semitism? If you were to define it to somebody, because uh, I think it's important as, as we kind of launch off on this, what, what exactly are we talking about when we say anti-Semitism? Well, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. It's difficult to define. I guess the cheapest and easiest way is to say people that hate Jews. It's a form of Jew hatred. But it's also... Um, a prejudice that shows up in subtle ways. Somebody's going to cheat you out of money. There are the cliches about Jews. But I believe it's much deeper. And I think what we're dealing with in the world right now is a really deep-rooted hatred of what I would say is the people God chose. God's chosen people are the Jews, first of all. His word says that. And that alone makes them set apart in a way. They set themselves apart through their way of life, and the world has hated that for a long time. So there seems to be a um, kind of, there's a a cultural issue of anti-Semitism, and then there seems to be like a geopolitical issue of anti-Semitism. And and I think it would be good, and it's going to be helpful to kind of phrase our overall conversation. And let's talk about the cultural issue first uh, that you write about kind of in your articles, and then we'll talk about uh, Iran, which I think kind of gets to the geopolitical issue of of anti-Semitism when it's politicized. Um, So if, if, Anti-Semitism is this kind of uh, uh, hatred of Jews, a Jewish hatred, hatred uh, for Israel. Um, there are ways that this, it manifests itself right in words and actions. And in, in, in your writing and in the reports that you uh, cite in your latest article and many other articles that you've written, um, talk a little bit about some of the word kind of aspects. You've got hate speech, you've got Holocaust deniers, you've got Zionist kind of conspiracy theories. Where do we see that uh, on the rise in the United States? Do we see that through social media and through Facebook um, being kind of iterated out into society more and more? Talk a little bit about 
about where we're seeing the kind of verbal anti-Semitism rise? Well, I think you do see it a lot on social media, but right now we're also seeing it in Congress in the words of some of the, the women, a couple of women that have been uh, elected to serve in the House of Representatives. And so it's, it's being given permission by them. There's also the work of Farrakhan, uh, Louis Farrakhan, who really doesn't even mask his hatreds. These things stir up angry people. And then uh, that stirs up more trouble. So it's, I would say here in America, it's mostly uh, verbal. It's, it's talk radio, people that hate, people that like certain speakers. But it polarizes around uh, more, I think, around Israel now than it used to. It used to be a cultural, um, just making fun of people and, and finding fault with the way they dress and finding fault with the fact that they don't eat with their neighbors or so forth. That's back maybe 200 years ago. Now we're looking at, it's focused a lot, since the Holocaust, which was the epitome of anti-Semitism in, in, in anybody's memory, now that's starting to fade, that story. People are starting to not believe it anymore. And they're starting to pick up the ball where, where the ball was laid down after that and start on the same issues. And now Nazism, especially in Europe, is starting to resurface Nazi symbols. And of course, that leads into vandalism, which is the next step. Right. So there's there's the verbal aspect of anti-Semitism, um, hate speech. And you mentioned different members of Congress, like Elon Omar from um, uh, Minnesota, who has gotten into uh, numerous times hot water about you know different statements that you've made about Israel, or that there is a dual loyalty oath that you know people have to take and members of Congress have to take, uh, which is again kind of a an old. Um, old song, I guess you would say, in that in that anti-Semitism camp, that there is some sort of you know dual loyalty, or you have to pledge both to Israel and to the United States. It's a common trope uh, that's that's trotted out. And then um, uh, Alexandria um, uh, Cortez uh, from New York has also, I think, most recently, even this this week, kind of in a in a odd and kind of um, uh, indirect way. Uh, was relatively anti-Semitic when she was comparing the, uh, you know, detention camps uh, for migrants that are fleeing, you know, uh, into the United States as concentration camps. And many people have been really quick to kind of point out that not only is it a nonsensical comparison, because there's, I mean, we're not mass exterminating people who are seeking, you know, asylum. We're literally trying to house them. Whether or not you think that's fair or right, it maybe is a different kind of issue, but there, there's just no, it seems to show on the part of her, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this or you have an opinion on it, that uh, with a younger generation, and in one of the articles you've written, I know that you you cited that maybe 20% or so of, of Americans maybe believe that the Holocaust uh, does did not happen. Many of those are going to, going to be younger. Um, that there's a younger generation that se- somehow seems to, um, since they're so distanced from the reality and the harshness of what the Holocaust was, they're able to trot it out whenever they feel like it. Like everything they disagree with, their Nazis, everyone, you know, every bad situation involving a, a separate people is a, holo- you know, is a Holocaust situation or a concentration camp situation or Auschwitz or Birkenau or whatever, which really just shows a total lack of appreciation, one for history, but also for what the Jews went through. I mean, do you, do you find that? Do you see that that's uh, 
a common trend? Or? Oh, yeah, I think you're right in both counts. And, and I would say for some, it's hyperbole, and they don't really know what they're talking about. Right. But the reason they don't is because of our educational system and the fact that these stories aren't being told anymore. They're not being reported in the history classes of kids any more than civics is being taught in our, our upper, upper level schools. These, a lot of young people really don't know what's happened in the world in the last hundred years and well before. So I think that's part of the problem is ignorance. Ignorance and perhaps now it's Holocaust denial that sort of surfaces and you hear it, uh, you know, in Europe it's much more widespread. And of course it's more ridiculous there because the camps are still there. Right. But people say, oh yeah, it's an exaggeration. It wasn't so bad. It wasn't, or else they, I think last week someone said, someone in, uh, some politicians in Europe said, oh, they went like lambs to the slaughter. In other words, they really... They didn't even have the ability to fight this, and they didn't care, and it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. I mean, um, it's hard to believe that it's come to that, but yes, I think it was 30 people under 30 are both more likely to be drawn toward an anti-Semitic attitude, and they're more ignorant about what happened in the history, in recent history. Well, I always find it funny that, and not funny, I mean funny in an ironic, you know, sad kind of way that uh, someone like Elon Omar, for instance, who's highly critical of Israel, has never been there, you know, <laughs> and, and that's frequently, you know, when asked, it's like, are you immigrated here, you know, to the United States and you've run for Congress, that's all great, you're really critical about Israel, Israel's this awful, horrible, you know, evil uh, regime and place, have you ever been there? No, and it's like, it's not hard to go, like, it, you know, you lived there for 10 years, I've been numerous times and stayed for weeks on end. And you know, it's not hard a place to get to if you want to learn about it. And you would think that uh, if you're going to occupy that level of high office and you're going to mouth off in that way, it would probably be wise to learn maybe what you're mouthing off about. Um, you might want to ask how many times you've been to lunch with Louis Farrakhan. Yeah, right. That's probably got a lot more to do with what they think of Israel than any personal experience that they've had. So it's... We talk about verbal anti-Semitism and, and kind of where it pops up in the political sphere and in social media and, and the different ways it pops up in culture. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of the, um, the action side, the violence uh, that occurs that seems to be with greater frequency occurring in the United States, that you've got um, violence that acts like uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh last year, uh, where a gunman walks into a synagogue and just begins shooting mainly, be, you know, and it's a hate-motivated crime aimed at the Jews specifically. You have vandalism, an increasing number of Jewish cemeteries around the United States or synagogues being vandalized, um, uh, mass killings uh, in, in uh, Europe in uh, 2015. So talk a little bit about how that is, how anti-Semitism is beginning to kind of pop up and, and you know, talk at some point is just not enough. It, it end, always ends up escalating into violence. Well, as long as I can remember uh, doing any kind of research or reading about terrorism, there have always been plans found to attack the LL uh, uh, aircraft or airline booths at LAX. I remember that because I was from California. And there was always a plan to do something to LL. And there's been this rage, this underbelly of rage. But part of it is, is a conquest idea. It's, uh, it's the idea that by killing Jews, they're making this huge statement, but there's really a lot of hate involved in it. It's hard to understand. I don't think we're capable of, of even feeling that, that kind of long-term hatred. It's just unnatural. 
I think that's a lot of it. I think that the white, there were two white supremacists that did the shootings here in the United States, which doesn't really uh, address the wider spread anti-Semitism that goes on elsewhere, but that's one aspect of it. Another is the left, the, the progressive left, and some of that has to do with Israel itself and money and how much money goes there and this and that. And there's not much reference to the fact that it's America's greatest ally in the Middle East and now a real uh, force in the Middle East. But the anti-Semitism that's cropping up out of Islam is infecting both of these other uh, groups. And I think the white supremacists wouldn't want to have lunch with Muslims, but they, they've gained some language and some attitude. It's sort of like a contagion. And as far as the left is concerned, I think it's just a political angle. And, and you know, they try, to, they try to erase they, journalists and uh, people that speak about this, don't really want to acknowledge the threat of the Islamic side of this, they, especially in Europe. And that's why it's gone crazy there because of the immigration issues. And these, you know, a lot of terrorists came in there, terrorists or potential terrorists. I mean, they, that's been well documented. So some of it is an infection that's come, it's given these other groups a, a reason to act, I think. So you, you've t mentioned in, this, in your answer three kind of different sides of anti-Semitism or like sources. And this is what is really fascinating to me. And I've, I've talked about this before on other podcasts is that what makes, um, you know, anti-Semitism, I think, a constant threat and I mean, something we need to constantly address is that it seems to be universal. You know, you would think that, you know, there are, maybe it would just be sourced in the right and countries that on the far right, like a uh, Hungary or a Germany or a far right Nazi party or some, you know, skinhead group in, in Germany that's nationalist and, and has that kind of far right leaning fascist um, kind of tendencies. And yet, it does happen there, but it also happens in places like Sweden and, and the United Kingdom that are like really highly secular and they're not overly religious and they're far left and e extremely liberal. And yet they also, you know, askew all of the branding of liberal tolerance and, you know, go after Jews. And then you have the religious component of uh, at, at one point in time, you know, um, uh, Catholic persecution, Muslim persecution, uh, and even Protestants, you know, persecution of, of, of Jews, that there's this um, religious kind of component. So talk about the, it just, why is it a universal hatred? Like, why is it, regardless of uh, political persuasion or ideology or, or geography, it seems to, that this hatred seems to be present. Why is that? Why, what's your theory of why that's the case? Well, there's so many books about this. I, I hesitate to have an opinion because I haven't read them all. But I do believe, as a Christian, that this is a spiritual issue. And the brutality against Jews during the first 2,000 years after they were expelled from their country from and the temple was destroyed was due to theology that said that God had replaced the Jews with Christians and that the Jews should wander the earth and they should, they should suffer for killing Christ. This was the foundation, and it came up from the early church fathers, and it's continued in certain circles. The Catholic Church has renounced it in, in, within the last hundred years, not so far back, uh, but it's still rooted, and I still run into it now and then. And this, uh, this guy that, shoot, that did the shooting in California, the, the synagogue shooting, had a, 
a manifesto of what he believed. And he, he restated that in certain ways. It was a bit crazy, but somewhat logical in, in, if you read it. I read some of it, but that was part of it. So it's partly within Christianity, it's rooted in that bad theology and that it wasn't a fulfillment of his chosen people. It was a replacement of his chosen people. So that's one thing. Then you get into Islam. And, you know, I have Muslim friends that, that love Israel, travel there, but they're in the, they are very exceptional because it's very rooted in interpretations of the Quran, which what I've read isn't too hard to interpret based on what it says, um, and the Hadith. So you've got that side, religious sides of it. And then you just have these... Uh, anti, uh, I don't know, it's people that also hate blacks. They, they don't just hate Jews. I mean, they've got their own narrow white or whatever color they are, view of others. They hate the, different. They the hate the other. other. Yeah, right. Exactly. So now I do know that China is is quite interested in, in Israel and finds, I suspect it's very pragmatic on their part. But they don't seem to have this, this prejudice. It seems to come in. I know Malaysia is very anti-Semitic, and it seems to have come in with Islam there, and Indonesia at times, too, although there's been an outreach from Indonesia to Israel. Um, as an overriding theme for me, it's spiritual. All hatred is, is, is evil. But this is specific, and I, I think it comes from the fact that God chose the Jews, and, and he also chose us as Christians. And by the way, this, is, this time of the world is the worst Christian persecution in history right now in at least 50-plus countries. So um, we're in the same boat in a way. Right. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, we've t talked about the cultural uh, manifestations of anti-Semitism. I want to go to kind of like the geopolitical and specifically talk about Iran uh, and talk about a little bit of the U.S. policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran and then talk a little bit about Iran's policy against uh, Israel. And we'll do that after a quick break. back to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, Journal of Christianity and American Foreign Policy. My guest today is uh, Leela Gilbert. We've been discussing anti-Semitism, uh, the rise of anti-Semitism, the kind of cultural manifestations of it, of how it, it shows up in social media and how it shows up in domestic politics in Europe and the United States. Uh, but Leela, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about kind of geopolitical uh, anti-Semitism and, and do it by talking about Iran, which you've written some articles um, that can be found at the Huston Institute about uh, the, the current U.S. policy regarding Iran. And um, if we take a little step back, right, and we look at kind of how we got to where we are today, um, I mean, talk to, uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe how we arrived at this moment, maybe talk about the the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that the Obama administration and Europe signed. Um, Trump withdrew from that. Like, how how did we get to this point where we're sabers are rattling, troops are moving, fleets are being deployed, uh, and ships are being sunk? Talk a little bit about this. How we got to this heightened state? I think the 
the problem that's contributed most to today is the sanctions that President Trump has put on Iran in order to bring them to the table to talk. He thinks that he can negotiate with them. He thinks he can negotiate with just about everybody. And that's fine. His way of, of bringing them to the table is to squeeze them financially. And they were already in trouble before he started this. A lot of this has been done in small bits by our treasury people. And it's, it's been worked for a while, but now it's really intense. I think what we're seeing is rage and, and fear on the part of Iran because the people of Iran have been swelling up in, in larger and larger demonstrations and raging about the way they're treated and why I think their chants include, we don't care about Lebanon, what about us, in, in so many words in Farsi. So I think the, the, the no, most recent problem has been sanctions. And I don't think it's a problem, I think it's a good idea. But now they're having tantrums about it and doing little things that aren't quite leading to war, but might. And it's hard to say where it's going to end. I mean, this is, uh, it's very possible that we might have a, a ship sunk or something, and it might get ugly. So you mentioned the, the, the chants that are going on in Iran right now, the, you know, what about, never mind Lebanon, what about us? And, and that's in a reference to the, uh, yes, Iran's well, very heavy-handed, you know, activities uh, through their proxy um, institution of Hezbollah, which is both a political institution and terrorist organization there in, in Lebanon that they spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, propping up this um, this organization in, in Lebanon. And I guess the, the chant is kind of rooting back, hey, you know, what about your own people? Like, what about us? Not to, you know, these kind of proxy fights uh, against uh, Israel. And so I guess this adds to the conversation, uh, the critique of like the Iran deal, this JCPOA, is, uh, you know, often been that you know, we're giving them, we're t removing sanctions, we're, we're giving them hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, in order to get them to basically open their country up and stop uh, enriching uh, nuclear material. And yet they're funneling that to these terrorist organizations. That, that's a real, um, that seems to be a real threat. And it seems to be something that for, for whatever reason, is, is glossed over by a lot of um, critics of the Trump administration. They're saying, you know, why is he doing this? Um, you know, why aren't we at the table? He's regressing us back, you know, from the progress that was made. But, I mean, you spent a number of years living in close proximity to, uh, to Lebanon, to Hezbollah, to through the uh, Lebanese civil war when you were in Israel. Um, I mean, talk a little bit about what that threat uh, the, the imminent threat that Iran poses to its neighbors in the region, like how it, what it feels like to live under that kind of, um, that weight of that threat. Well, just for starters, there are over 100,000 rockets on the border of Lebanon, very close to the border of Israel, that are all aimed at cities in Israel. Uh, all it would take would be some kind of an uh, international explosion, and those are going to be launched, and it's going to be a bloodbath at first. I think the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, have a pretty good plan for how to deal with it, but it won't happen instantly. It's very dangerous. Those, it's sort of like Gaza times 100,000 because they're hidden away. These launch pads are hidden away. Grandma's basement, they're, not, they're in homes. They're in, in mosques. They're all over, and they're there, and everybody knows they're there. So the first thing that's going to happen 
if there's a real blow up with Iran, is that those rockets are going to get launched. Missiles, some of them, they're trying to get guided missiles now. They're trying to perfect them with smartphone technology. So whether they are able to do that or have done it yet, I don't know. But the Syrian war and Hezbollah and the strengthening of Hezbollah via the Syrian war, it, they lost a lot of people, but they learned a lot of, of tactics. And now arms are coming in via Lebanon into Syria, which is also along the border of the Golan Heights. So, I mean, it's been that way. When I first went to Israel, Ahmadinejad was the president of Iran, and he made it very clear what everything was about with Israel. It was all about kill the Jews, death to Israel, over and over, UN, you name it, he did it. Now they've got a president that's a so-called moderate. But the, the theory is still there, the chants are still there, and the same supreme leader is still there. This, they didn't change supreme leaders, and he's the guy, not the president, not anybody else. He's the guy, and he's got the same, he says it publicly even now. You don't get the title supreme leader if, if you're not, I guess, the supreme leader, right? It's, uh, um, so it's, um, there seems to be, uh, you know, a real threat. And what's funny to me is that within this kind of larger conversation, um, that threat is very rarely acknowledged in this in this discussion. So when we talk about uh, what the United States is doing, or when we talk and, and talk through the criticism that the Trump administration is receiving for being stronger and firmer and tougher and and putting you know boots on the ground and and uh, fleets in the seas and and you know really I guess uh, arming ourselves and preparing to uh, potentially act out uh, militarily. You know, there's a lot of criticism there, and it says you know this is doesn't make sense economically. They're just being used, uh, the United States is being used as a proxy by Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other Sunni countries. Uh, but all of that seems to miss the, the bigger picture, that for the neighbors of Iran in the region, but most specifically for Israel, uh, there is this threat that if Iran gets nuclear capability, like if they get a, nu a nuclear weapon, uh, one that can be either driven in on a truck, you know, across a border, or one that can be launched and, and placed on a missile, that not only is, is Europe, which is one of the reasons why Europe is, is uh, uh, concerned about this, Europe is often in the strike zone, much of southern and southeastern Europe, but I mean, they, the stated like purpose, the stated mission of the supreme leader and of, of Shia Islam is to see Israel eliminated and to see it pushed into the sea. And that we're not dealing with rational actors. We're not dealing with, you know, uh, some, any kind of semblance of um, actors that, that have a respect for human life or an understanding of pluralism or liberalism or any of that. This is a, th a theocratic state that frequently persecutes Christians, persecutes Jews, uh, persecutes anybody who degree, uh, disagrees with the supreme leader. And by persecute, I mean eliminate. Um, so, I mean, talk a little bit about that threat. I mean, the, the reality of that threat and um, uh, maybe even just do you approve of the, the, the steps that the Trump administration is taking? A lot of people are critical of it, uh, but do you see some, some wisdom there, intentional or unintentional, to treat, you know, harsh leaders with uh, harsh reality? One of the things that I've heard since before I went there was that there was always a way of thinking that they could not allow them to have a nuclear device. That was the bottom line. John Bolton, years ago, was talking that way, and he was considered a hawk and all of that. 
the truth is that, yes, they can do what you suggested in terms of uh, suitcase bombs and whatever, but their other part of their chant is death to the United States, death to America. So it's not just Israel that's at risk, and, and those suitcase bombs can come in here across the Mexican border. There are a lot of, there's a lot of activity down there with uh, some, of these, some of these terrorist groups have made arrangements with the Mexican uh, uh, groups that do the drug smuggling and all of that. Cartels. Cartels. Uh, yeah. Cartels. So my view is that it's, it's a problem that's been overlooked, and it, it's overlooked because people think they can reason that these are reasonable players, and so they keep sending money to the Iranians. Meanwhile, Iran has encroached on at least five countries in the last 10, 12 years, little by little. Iraq and Everybody blames America for that because of 2003, and okay, fine. But now the militias that are in, uh, that are uh, Iranian militias, which are Shia militias flying the flags of their heroes, their Shia heroes, are now the ones that are persecuting the Christians that tried to return to their homes in Iraq after the ISIS assaults, and they, they finally got some places rebuilt. They've gone back to some of those towns, Bartella being the the most notable. And um, these these guys are funded by Iran and they're harassing the Christians and the Christians are leaving again. So there's one example. They are trying to completely build a bridge across Syria, a land bridge from, from wherever they want to start to the sea. And they're doing pretty well at it and they're using militias that they fund. So they they have these tactics. They're, they're attacking... Um, uh, Afghanistan, they have groups working there, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and they are making headway into some of these stands. Part of it's religious, it's done through Shia evangelism. But one thing that I think is very interesting inside Iran is the, some of the, the, the people that have come out recently that are Christian, converts, many converts from Islam, are saying that there's a huge revival of Christian conversions from Shia Islam and that they start reading the Bible and they learn about this country called Israel in the Old Testament and they find out that that was God's people and they're now back in their land and they're being accused publicly of being Christian Zionists. Some of them are imprisoned because they're a threat to the regime because of their new beliefs. So that's an interesting aspect that I learned fairly recently from, from some people that had come out of there. So it's a religious issue, too. All of this has to do with Shia versus Sunni, and that's one matter that we won't even bother to talk right. about. It goes on forever, but it has gone on forever since like the uh, wait, 20 or 30 years into, the, into mm -hmm. Islam. But we have to look at this spiritually if we're Christians and people of prayer and also people with perspective because most of the world is more religious than Europe. And the Europeans don't understand, some of them are not able to understand this aspect of world affairs. And it's very much a part of world affairs in the Middle East, very deeply rooted. So do I approve of what's going on? I think laying some heavy burdens on Iran is a, a very good idea. I can't say how it'll come out. 
I wouldn't be surprised if there's some some uh, shooting back and forth, but I don't know if it's going to launch a major war. I don't think anybody knows. But I know the Israelis are getting ready for it. They've been doing all kinds of training. Even this week, I think they ended one operation today, a, uh, <laughs> a rehearsal. So, so one of the... the um kind of aspects of this as we begin to wrap up is that, you know, we've been talking throughout this entire um, conversation about anti-Semitism, and we talked about it culturally, we talked about it kind of geopolitically and talking about Iran, is that uh, while it, it uh, since it's an anti-movement, right, I mean, it's, it's fighting against something, it's fighting against the Jews, and it's, it's fighting against Israel, that um, it's, it's perennial and it never goes away, but then there's also, to me, there's a little glimmer of hope in there, and it, it never goes away because the, the Jews never go away, right? I mean, for their entire history, they've never gone away. They're still present, they're still here, they're still, you know, vibrant and kind of clinging to life, and you can see that it's, to me, it's almost a testament and there's a little kind of a theological aspect in this in, as, in a Christian mindset that, you know, you, as you undergo persecution, you understand, you know, a cultural persecution or a physical persecution that, that, you know, the world's not hating you, they're hating the God that you represent, right, and the Savior that you represent. The same, I think, maybe, I think your argument has a lot of validity, mainly because it's like, it, it speaks to the irrationality of the hatred behind anti-Semitism. It, it seems to make no sense apart from some sort of kind of like spiritual uh, significance and spiritual hatred that, that's there. Um, that even though this hatred persists, that the people still persist. And I think that God's, in, in one way or another, is going to like secure his people and like, uh, you know, keep his people um, in, in his hand and ultimately has a plan uh, for them, both Christians and Jews. And um, uh, we can just kind of hope that um, the, the violence uh, subsides and, until that plan can be realized. Um, as, we, as we kind of wrap up, um, can you, are you hopeful, like in all the years that you've been writing, and you've been writing for a, a great number of years on these issues and living in, in these cultures, I mean, are you, do you look at the future and are you at all hopeful? Are you pessimistic? Are you, do you see the rise of anti-Semitism and see it as being the next 30, 40, 50 years of it being an increasingly darker time? Like where, locate your, you know, kind of your hope uh, or lack thereof looking into the future? Well, if I look at the Bible, and I'm not, just as a uh, beginning, I'm not one of these prophecy people that can tell you on a chart where everything's going to happen and when and how, but God's brought his people back and regathered them in their land, and I think that's pretty significant. It's never happened before uh, in, in biblical, from biblical times to today. They've never been regathered and resettled, nor have they ever been so successful. These people have practically conquered cyberspace. They're doing medical research that is being exported in the most remarkable ways worldwide. The number of Nobel Prizes that have come to Jews and Israelis in the last, as long as there have been Nobel Prizes, is remarkable. They are prospering and they're contributing. They're being a light to the nations, which is what they believe they should be. And they really are. They're, they're doing rescue work that nobody else knows how to do when there are earthquakes. Every time there's a disaster, there's an Israeli team on the ground in 24 hours putting up a field hospital. It's a remarkable country. And I can't see things falling apart to the point that they disappear again. I don't believe that's going to happen. I think that we're going to have some some bloodshed, and we are having bloodshed, Christians and Jews. But 
it may get worse for Christians than it is for Jews because Jews have their own country and they have their own army. They have defense. They have plans. And Christians are usually living in rural areas worldwide in countries that hate them. Pakistan is a good example. Countries where they have really no hope. And I don't know. I wish we had an Israel for Christians. But we, they're not coming in here anymore, and I don't know what I think about that. Well, Leela Gilbert, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your perspective, for writing, and um, for sharing your time with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.